It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 325 for January 13th, 2013. This week, improvements in Excel 2013, part of the Microsoft Office suite. Will your applications work with Windows 8? When things go wrong... And in short circuits, the end of Newsweek, and the beginning, Microsoft reports Windows 8 sales figures and surprise, Iran is blamed for ongoing attacks on U.S. banks, and Google's Eric Schmidt calls for open internet access in North Korea. Last week, I began a series of reports on the new version of Microsoft Office. Released to manufacturing late last year, it'll be on store shelves by the end of the first quarter. If you're a manufacturer or a member of Microsoft TechNet, you may already have a copy of Office 2013, and if not, you can download the preview version that'll work until the final version is released. That's regardless of who you are. I've been using the release version since last October, and some of the refinements, particularly in Word, are most welcome. But Microsoft gave Excel users some new toys, too. Flashville is probably the most interesting of the new features, and it shows how applications can be made to recognize patterns. In previous versions, users could write a function to split data from a single column into multiple columns. With Excel 2013, the process has changed so that the user can show Excel what the result should be. For example, let's say you've received a file that has several bits of information in a single column. You can fill in the appropriate values on a single line and then have Excel complete the process for the entire list, whether it's 10 items or 100 or 20,000. That's one of the capabilities that Microsoft illustrates in a video that you'll find on the TechBiter Worldwide website. To somebody like me, this might appear to be a solution in search of a problem, because if somebody sends me a messy file with multiple values in the same field, I'll probably just fix the problem before importing it into Excel for analysis. That, however, might involve the use of SED or GREP or AUK, or maybe all three of them, on a Linux system. So it's probably fair to say that most people who depend on Excel have limited familiarity with SED, GREP, and AUK, so the new capability is particularly welcome. I'm a words person more than a numbers person, no surprise there, but more than that, I'm an information person. Any program that makes sharing information easier is welcome, and increasingly Excel is less about simple number crunching and more about information analysis. All too often, when Excel users want to create a chart that will illustrate the underlying meaning of data on a spreadsheet, they choose a chart type that's pretty instead of one that accurately reflects the data. Excel 2013 attempts to improve this situation. Although it's not always right, the program's selections at least can put the user on a reasonable track. Just select some data and hover the mouse over the selection. Excel will suggest some chart types that match the underlying data. Additionally, Excel displays a message that explains why it selected the chart type. Subtle animations are part of Excel, too, and these can help users understand what's happening. In earlier versions of Excel, changing underlying data caused a linked chart to update, but the change was instantaneous. In the 2013 version, the change animates, and this calls attention to the change. 
or click a cell in a spreadsheet. The highlight doesn't just appear, but it seems to flow into place. This is another way that this version of Excel uses animation to improve the user experience. Now, these interface changes may strike some as silly, but I found them to be helpful, and they are definitely not silly. The old adage about Microsoft products, and truthfully about products from a lot of other publishers, is that help doesn't. Well, people will probably still say that about Microsoft. Old habits are hard to break. But Microsoft is making the sentiment harder to express honestly. Diagnostic messages really are better in 2013. A new add-in can even seek out errors and inconsistencies between related worksheets. No matter how much of an Excel power user you are, it's still easy to introduce inconsistencies. So overall, it looks to me like Microsoft has a winner here. Microsoft released some Windows 8 sales figures this week, and I'll talk about those later. But you might be wondering if your applications will work with Windows 8. Some earlier versions of Windows, particularly Vista, had a great deal of trouble running some applications and using certain hardware. Windows 7 eliminated many of the incompatibilities, many of them, and Windows 8 has eliminated even more. But even so, not everything will work with Windows 8. The good news, though, is that if your hardware and software work with Windows 7, they'll probably work with Windows 8. But note the key term, probably. If you'd like to give yourself better odds, check Microsoft's Compatibility Center to see for sure. The site has options that will allow you to check for compatibility with Windows 7, Windows RT, and Windows 8. Windows RT runs on the low-powered Surface tablets, or as Microsoft describes them, and I quote, the thin and light PCs which have extended battery life and are designed for life on the go. If you buy an RT device, it won't run any legacy applications that you might currently be running on a notebook or a desktop system. There are tablets that run the standard Windows 8 operating system, and those will run applications such as Word or Photoshop or Firefox. Instead of using the Compatibility Center, you might want to try the Upgrade Assistant. It will scan your computer and create a report that lists any incompatible hardware or software. Additionally, the Upgrade Assistant provides guidance on any changes that might be needed to run your existing applications. Older applications, such as those written for Windows XP, might be a problem. And keep in mind that XP was released in August of 2001, more than 11 years ago. Some of these applications expected to have more permissions than modern operating systems will give them. The Windows Program Compatibility Troubleshooter can locate these problems and might be able to provide the guidance you need to run the program with enhanced permissions. In many cases, you can simply upgrade the device driver software for video cards and audio subsystems and they'll work just fine under Windows 8. In fact, the Windows 8 update process is frequently able to find and install new device drivers without any effort on your part. Small updates called patches are available for many applications to improve their Windows 8 compatibility. Checking the software publisher's website for a free update is a good and important first step. Although you might be able to trick an antique program into running under Windows 8 by running it under the administrator account or having Windows 8 tell the application that it's actually running an earlier version of the operating system, you might also want to consider upgrading some applications that you use. A 10-year-old application, after all, will be missing about as many features as a 1943 Studebaker. 
If you really must run an old application and you can't find a way to convince Windows 8 to play nice with it, well, then it's time to use the big hammer. Run it on a virtual machine. Windows 8 includes Hyper-V, and when you enable it and run an older version of Windows in addition to Windows 8, you're able to run some of the older programs. For information on how to set this up, see the Microsoft TechNet website. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you heard last week's TechBiter Worldwide podcast, you might have thought I was channeling Jerry Pornell's Chaos Manor. Ever since the computer update in November, I've been seeing an intermittent problem that usually occurs when I'm trying to rip a DVD or burn a DVD, or occasionally even play a DVD. The problem didn't have much of a signature, and I couldn't reliably reproduce it. As a result, it wasn't possible to determine the cause. Was it hardware? Was it software? Was it the operating system? Some combination? Well... On Thursday, the 3rd of January, we found out. Last week's podcast was without the standard opening, the closing credits, or any of the musical bridges called bumpers. At the time, I said I would explain this, and here's the explanation. Thursday evening, I was writing the final bits of the weekly program when Dreamweaver stopped responding to the mouse of the keyboard. Using the task manager, I terminated Dreamweaver and then started it again, only to have the same thing happen. Some text was open in Ultra Edit Studio, a text editor, and the same thing happened there. I tried Notepad, same thing. Excel, same thing. I could open programs, but they would stall in a way that was reminiscent of what was happening with the DVDs. So, thinking that something was amiss with system memory, I decided to reboot the computer. Windows 8 shuts down quickly, but this time it didn't. After 10 minutes, I simply shut off the power. In the few weeks after the computer upgrade, this would occasionally cause the solid-state boot drive to disappear, only to reappear eventually. A firmware update fixed that problem. But this time, when I tried to boot the system, all I got was a flashing cursor. This is an unmistakable sign that the boot drive is missing. And this time, it didn't come back. Not in an hour, not in two, not in a day, not in two days. You might consider that to be a disaster. But I thought it was good news. Now I had a clearly identifiable hard failure. Intermittent problems have to be identified before they can be fixed. Hard failures eliminate all that guesswork. An early version of the week's program was already on the website last week. All of the changes I had just added were fortunately in a text file on an FTP site. Although the same files would have been on my local hot backup drives, I decided it'd be faster just to redo the last updates on the laptop even though none of the podcast production files happened to be there. So in the spirit of the show must go on, I completed writing on Thursday and then went on to record the program on Friday. The site had several inconsistencies, such as some pages with the 2012 theme, which looks a lot like the 2013 theme, so nobody called me on that. But I had to hard-code a complicated section that controls the podcast. took only four tries to get that right. The link to the current week's program calls a file called current.html. Clever name, huh? But the 2013 update uses current.php. In the time available, I couldn't modify the template, so I replaced the code in current.html with code that redirects to current.php. On Saturday, I dropped off the computer and an external hard drive with an old image of the boot drive at TCR in Pickerington. I'd planned to update the C image on January 5th, but of course that never happened. This week's program is also being written on the notebook computer. 
but now I've hooked up the hot backup drives and an external monitor. I've discussed the importance of backup previously, but there's also a need for a recovery plan. Backup doesn't really help in this case. Everything is fully backed up, but I needed to continue working while the primary computer was in the shop. A notebook computer and the hot backup drives make that possible. By Saturday, I had located a cable that would allow me to use one of the large monitors with the notebook computer, and fortunately, Windows 8 makes it possible to designate the external monitor, which I put on the left, as the primary monitor, and then to use the notebook's screen as the extension. See the picture on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The technical problems also caused some delays in updating the TechBiter Worldwide website. Last week's program used the new format, but the non-program pages, the index page, the contact page, and pages like that, still had the 2012 format applied. The email link initially pointed to the wrong page until I set up a temporary redirect on that page. By Sunday, I'd been able to cobble together the remaining pieces and get them uploaded. What I expected to be a 10-minute task on Saturday morning turned out to be about a 90-minute chore on a Sunday afternoon. As of the recording date for this week's program, I have migrated everything needed to produce the show from the backup drives to the notebook computer, and I'm even using a spiffy new device that makes it possible to record directly into Adobe Audition instead of onto a digital recorder. By next week... Everything should be back to normal. In short circuits, for Newsweek, it's the end, but it's also the beginning. Remember when the nation had three news magazines every week? Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News and World Report. Only one of those will continue after today as a weekly print publication. As much as I like having the ability to read news publications online, I do regret that we're losing the print editions. Time remains for now. U.S. News and World Report had been shrinking for years, and of course, Newsweek is now gone. Starting in June 2008, U.S. News & World Report reduced its publication frequency, first from weekly to bi-weekly, then to monthly, and finally in November 2010, it became online only, effective in January 2011. U.S. News & World Report will still publish special issues in print on colleges, hospitals, and personal finance, but the weekly magazine is gone. The December 31, 2012 version of Newsweek was the last print copy. It joins U.S. News as an online-only news publication. Yes, I know that will mean tighter deadline. Yes, I know the killer for print operations is the cost of printing and distributing paper copies. And yes, I know what I will see on the screen will be higher quality than what I see on paper. But I'll still miss the print edition. I believe that it was Newsweek many years ago when a new emperor was crowned in Japan that included a message from the editor describing a process by which a photographer in Japan had used a digital camera to record an image from the scene. The image had been sent via modem. The internet wasn't yet available outside the military. And it had been processed for the magazine cover. When the magazine arrived in homes on Monday or Tuesday, the photo was there. Remarkable. Today, though, if a baby is born in Tokyo, the parents can send a photo to relatives in New York, Chicago, and Bangalore. The photo will arrive in seconds, and it'll be far higher quality than those of the long-ago photos of the emperor. Times change. 
TechBiter Worldwide, back when it was Technology Corner, was heard in Columbus, Ohio, and because WTVN's power was 5,000 watts, it could also be heard in northern Kentucky, northwest West Virginia, western Pennsylvania, southern Michigan, southern Ontario, and eastern Indiana. Now I hear from listeners in Europe, Asia, Australia, and South America, in addition to people from throughout the United States and Canada. In the 1980s, the New York Times landed on my doorstep every morning, but I had to wait until evening to read it. Now I can check the online version of the Times at lunch, and it's updated constantly. When I read the paper in the 1980s, the content was about 24 hours old by the time I saw it, because closing time for the national edition was around 5 p.m. the previous day. Today, I read the New York Times on a tablet computer at lunch, and instead of reading the national edition deadline yesterday, I see the full text of the metro edition that people are reading on the subways today. And as most newspapers do these days, the New York Times offers updates throughout the day. At the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas this week, Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer said that Windows 8 is in use on 60 million computers. The operating system has been on sale for about 10 weeks. If not outstanding, the number is at least a respectable start for Microsoft's new track and operating systems. When Windows 7 was launched in 2009, adoption rates were lower than those seen for Windows 8. Yes, I said lower. In other words, those who are leading the Windows will fail chorus well, they seem to be being proved wrong. Windows 7 averaged about 20 million sales per month in the first nine months it was available. Ten weeks is about two and a half months, so dividing 60 million by two and a half gives monthly sales of around 24 million copies. That's four million more per month than Windows 7. Some of the orders, of course, will be bulk purchases by OEMs for new computers. Microsoft has also generally been unwilling to talk about sales of its Surface tablets, but only the lower-power RT version is currently available for sale. Tablets that run the full version of Windows 8 are available for other manufacturers, though, and they'll be available soon for Microsoft. The United States and Israel have launched several cyber attacks against Iran, some aimed at the nation's banks, others at Iran's nuclear program. Well, now it seems to be payback time. You may have noticed that your bank's website has been extraordinarily slow or even unavailable. Distributed denial-of-service attacks have been staged against several U.S. banks, including Bank of America, Branch Banking and Trust, Capital One, Citigroup, Fifth Third Bank, HSBC, PNC, U.S. Bank Corp., and Wells Fargo. Well, what's unusual about these attacks is that they appear to be coming from data center servers instead of from individual computers. This increases both the complexity and the threat level considerably, and the consensus among security officials is that the attackers are based in Iran, even though another group, Il Az Din al Qassam Cyber Fighters, has claimed to have pulled off the attacks. The Stuxnet virus attack that destroyed some of the equipment used by Iran's nuclear program has been definitively shown to have come from Israel, and several other attacks are believed to have been joint U.S.-Israel operations. 
The banking attacks began in September of last year, and they're continuing. Ratcheting the problem up a few notches is the fact that the attackers' denial-of-service attacks use encryption. That makes each request in the flood more time-consuming for the server that's under attack. Google's Eric Schmidt was in North Korea this past week on a mission led by former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson. It's billed as a humanitarian mission, but at least some of the message is probably unwelcome. Schmidt says that North Korea's government should allow more open Internet access. North Korea does have an intranet that's available to a limited number of users, but Internet access is granted only on a case-by-case basis, and not very often. The U.S. State Department is unhappy about the visit, but that's the case whenever Richardson takes a delegation to Pyongyang. Schmidt toured some of North Korea's computer manufacturers. He was shown the Samjong tablet computers. They run the Red Star operating system. Richardson says that the delegation's primary message is that a more open society would benefit both North Korea's citizens and its government. Give your people access to the Internet. Allow them to have cell phones. Richardson's group is also trying to raise awareness about Kenneth Bay. He's a U.S. citizen currently jailed in North Korea as part of an investigation of what the government terms hostile acts against the state. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.